Glad everybody's here. I'll pray and get us started. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for what your word means in our lives. I pray that as a result of this series, we would grasp A, the value of your word, and B, how to properly digest it, what that looks like. I know this is a topic that is particularly important for new believers, but also, Lord, I I think this is a topic and a good refresher for any of us. Um, And it's not a strict book study, Lord. I know we're going into different areas other than the book uh, covers, but Lord, I just pray your spirit would be on us tonight. Your spirit would lead this time um, and bring us understanding of what we need to know and what we need to lock, the truths we need to lock down in our homes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Glad everyone's here. So week one, if you didn't grab a copy of the notes, they're available right back there at the table. It's our great gentlemen back there, our table guards. And um, you'll see uh, uh, evangelism brochure there too. I'll, I'll explain that in just a little bit toward the end. Okay, so do you love, my question for you tonight in introducing this idea is, do you love God's word? Do you value what he has to say above anything else? Look at 2 Timothy 3. So in your notes, I kept it very general. So we'll start in the introduction first. So that's where we are right now, introduction. Uh, If you're a detailed note taker, you've got the back for extra space. So slide over with me, New Testament. If you hit the Gospels, take a right, go to 2 Timothy 3. Some passages that we cover tonight, some of you may have read several times. Uh, Maybe we're going to hit one or two where... Uh, you haven't read it in a while, or you haven't heard it, or you haven't heard it explained. Okay, so 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. The Bible makes an outrageous claim. And either that claim, it can't be both. Either the claim's false or the claim's true. It can't be in between. It makes an outrageous claim about itself. Okay, here's what it says. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. It says, all scripture, in the New Testament, guys, anytime they use that Greek word graphe, scripture, writings, they're talking about what they had at that point in time, which was the Old Testament. But it also, because we know they called each other's works graphe, we also know they have in mind all of the Bible, not just the Old Testament. Probably one of the earliest gospels circulating was Mark. We're not sure, but we think Mark was probably the first gospel written. Obviously, a lot of the content fed to him by Peter, most likely. And so, Graphe, scripture, he says, all scripture, Paul says, is given by, verse 16, inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. It's God inspired. And it's profitable, means it's advantageous, it's useful for a few different things. Doctrine, that's belief, what to believe, good teaching, proper teaching. For doctrine, for reproof and correction, so things that need to be proven, things that need to be corrected. And then he says, for instruction in righteousness, but there's a so that clause, In verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 17. So the Bible is claiming to be the very speech of God. Paul talks about it. Uh, Peter mentions it, uses the same word referring to Paul's writings. And he said, some of which is hard to understand. (laughs) So Peter's almost, not really, but he's almost kind of dogging on Paul's letters that, I mean, you read Romans you need to dig into Romans. There are some things that if you just breeze quickly through, yeah, they're a little hard to understand at first. So the Bible has to have at least two things, okay, to, to be the very speech of God. Number one, it has to be accurate. 
In other words, it corresponds to reality. Does what this book tells me actually, does that actually line up with what's real? Or, or is it just fantasy? And look, there are a lot of people, even in our country, in our culture today, that believe, look, this is just fantasy. It's not even real. So number one, it, to, to be the very speech of God, it has to have two things. Number one, it has to be accurate or correspond to reality. And then number two, it has to be sufficient. That's a fancy word, meaning it has everything you need to find God and follow God. So the Bible has to be accurate, and the Bible has to be sufficient. Sufficient meaning it has everything you need to find God and follow God. God explains who he is in the Bible. God explains who we are. He explains the distinction. He kind of thinks that he's God. He thinks that we're not. (laughs) So you clearly have a distinction in creation between creator and then all of creation. If you worship any part of creation, ourselves, other people, uh, animals, nature itself, whatever, all the other cults, uh, would take some sort of nature or the creation and worship part of it or all of it or whatever. And that leaves you empty. It leaves you unfulfilled. It leaves you thinking there's got to be more to life. It's only when you worship the creator, not the creation, that you understand your meaning, your significance, your value, your calling in life, all those things. So you either believe that the Bible is enough or you don't. If you do, and the fact that we're here tonight to do a Bible study, I'm assuming that most of the people in the room would say yes. If you do, you're left with the task of learning how to understand it, how to consume it, and how to grow from it. Uh, I love the illustration where this has been told a million times. And everything good, by the way, is borrowed or stolen. No one first came up with this probably. Who knows who did? But I love the illustration that says, look, I can't remember every sermon I've ever heard. Neither can you. But look, I can't remember every meal I've ever eaten, but I know that I was fed. I know that I got nutrition from the food, and I know that, right, sometimes your wife thinks you can remember every meal that she's ever cooked. But in fact, ladies, sorry to burst this bubble, we cannot, even the ones that you think we would, you say, three weeks ago, you don't remember three weeks ago when I made, and the guy's sitting there going, I'm trying to remember. Do you want me to lie? Do you want me to be honest? I'm sure it was great. It fed me. I don't remember all the details of what you're saying. I trust you. It fed me. It's similar with this, although obviously there's differences. You should remember the word over time. But yeah, I can't remember every meal I've ever eaten, but I know I got fed. And there's some truth to that illustration, but you should remember most of what you learned from God's word. And I would make sure you're focusing on one thing at a time. One truth at a time. I, I Look, some people do this, and I'm fine with it. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus that does this, but I don't learn, <coughs> excuse me, I don't learn quite as well if somebody throws five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten things at me about a particular text. I'm only going to mem- remember to lock down one or two. So t- you take one truth at a time in God's Word. You walk through, you digest it. We'll talk about that in this series. And uh, that's what you do. So now in your notes, chapter 1. Chapter 1 in the book, we're going to follow the book a little bit, but not strictly. We're going to branch out on our own too. So chapter 1 in this book is called Starving for the Word. And I love that title because it's, it's true. We were one, once we were one of the most, well, first it was England early on. Uh, not first, but early on, many years ago. Was England was a large mission-sending country, huge. Um, America. The gospel moved here. America became a huge 
the pilgrims and part of their Plymouth Rock and part of the spiritual heritage inherited from them and a lot of what they did. And the biblical literacy of this country was amazing. It was second to none. In fact, Ben Franklin said, man, when I talk about the Bible, he gave a speech, the longest speech he ever gave in the Constitutional Congress when they were forming the Constitution. Most people don't know this, but those meetings were this close. My fingers are touching. This close from falling apart and crumbling. In fact, some of the guys had already left. They said, we can't agree on anything. We're gone. Ben Franklin stood up and said, how in the world we got through the revolution praying to God and asking for his protection and guidance. How in the world do you think we're going to form this document without doing the same thing? Apparently, this is the most secular guy of the founding fathers, but that's a statement of degrees, right? Not an absolute statement. Ben Franklin, I'm not saying he was a Christian, but absolutely believed in the principles of that, and he called the group to prayer, and it's because of his speech that they started prayer after that and started to, um, to pray before they discussed what this document was going to be about, what they needed to uh, what they needed to know, what they needed to discuss to get on the same page. And so Ben Franklin said, look, when I speak in America and I make biblical references, in this speech he gave that I referenced, he gave uh, something like, it's, it's something like 14, I think, Bible references in that one sh- little speech that he gave, short speech, over a dozen Bible, verse, Bible references that he just could rattle off. And he said, when I'm in America and I make a Bible reference, I don't have to tell the people what book it's in because they know When I'm in Europe, he said, they have no clue what I'm talking about, so I have to explain the context, I have to explain the background. So we once were a very, very biblically literate people, but we're going through a famine for God's word. And here's what's interesting about this famine. Usually when you have a famine, there's scarcity of the product. There's not enough of the product. In fact, there's even a shortage, right? But this famine is different. It's self-imposed. Is there any scarcity of God's word in this nation? Not at all. You have just the opposite. You have at your fingertips, you have online commentaries. Blue Letter Bible has some great resources. Blue Letter Bible. Also Bible Hub. Bible Hub has some great free resources online. I can listen to Bible Audio. I can listen to uh, Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel, California. I can listen to some great notes and Bible studies for free. I have the Bible on my phone. When we went up on the Temple Mount in Israel in 2015, uh, the Muslims... The Israelis run security up there. Trust me, you want them running security, not the other guys. The Israelis run security, but they let the Islamic authority run the rules, what's allowed, what's not allowed up there. They bend over backwards to accommodate these people, and they're still not happy. Anyway, so we go up there, and they say, you can't bring your Bible. And I'm sitting there going, which I didn't that day. We left it in the tour bus. I'm going, it's on my phone, dummies. Anyway, okay, um, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, You... We'll stick with the Greek word. Oh, I'm sorry. We have a cubby in here. Sorry. Okay. Um, I'll just skip that part. (laughs) M-O-R-O-S is a Greek word in the New Testament. Spell that out and sound. think of what English word that sounds like. It's a great word. It is actually in the Bible. I love that word. Okay. So we're going through a famine. And here's what's crazy about this famine. There's no scarcity or shortage of the product, God's word, in this famine. And yet there's a famine. So famine, when there's plenty of product available, is not due to a shortage of the product, but a shortage of the desire or willingness to consume the product. So it's, it's like we have food right in front of us, and sometimes we refuse to eat, or we look at it and we think, huh, that's nice. So the cause, uh, I love what David Barton says. One time I heard him say, um, 
if we ate physical food as much as we ate spiritual food, we would die. I mean, we would not survive. So it should be that important to us. So the cause of biblical famine in our land is not a shortage of Bibles. We have tons of Bibles. Look, our missionary we send to, Cam, uh, not Cameroon, our missionary that we send to Myanmar, Burma, he has to smuggle Bibles in, pay guys to smuggle them in. I don't know this for a fact, but I, in my mind when I first heard that, I was thinking, wait, so they're probably often being smuggled right next to illegal drugs <laughs> that you have to smuggle into the country, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. Um, and so he, they have to smuggle, and then they meet him at a certain point, and they get it, and they distribute it to the villages and things like that. And so they have a shortage of Bibles. We don't. I can't tell you how many Bibles. I don't even know if you should go look in my office that I have. I, I've, I've lost count. So that's not the problem. The cause of the biblical famine is not a shortage of Bibles, but a spiritual anorexia for the Bible. Uh, I just don't want to eat sometimes. An unwillingness to consume what God wants to tell you. And God does want to speak to you. He does want to tell you things. So let me take you back in time, okay, before we read our next verse. It's 8th century B.C. Israel's prospering under King Jeroboam II. The nation's enjoying financial prosperity, military prosperity, or you could say political, both. But something even more important is very wrong. When they had the word of God, they basically ignored it and pushed it away and looked at those other things as the most important deal. And so when they needed it, it couldn't be found. When they needed to hear from God, it, it was nowhere to be found. Here's what they say. So take a hard left if you're still in 2 Timothy and go to Amos chapter 8 in the Old Testament. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Amos, I still use my tab cutouts in my Bible. (laughs) I know where the book is, but I still like the tabs. Okay, Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. By the way, I never learned those songs, the order of the Bible, when I was in Awana. I did grow up in a Bible church. I did grow up going to Awana in that Bible church, but we never, um, I, I never got past my starter book. Okay, so if you have kids in Cubbies or Awana or you help in there sometimes or you, whatever, and, and just they're not beyond hope, okay? So um, Amos 8, 11 and 12, I was always, I would always going, that's nice, when's game time? Okay, Amos 8, 11 and 12 says this, behold, the days are coming, says, said the Lord God, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst up for water but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's the famine. They will wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They'll run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but will not find it. So God is not just concerned with our financial status or our political status or our military status. And this was even issued in a time when they had some of those things. He's also very concerned. I'm not saying those things are unimportant at all, but he's very concerned about our spiritual status. Now, don't make the mistake of disconnecting the spiritual from the physical. I think a lot of people set those two at odds, and I, I think that's false. I don't think we should do that. Spiritual truth is lived out in a physical world. So I can't separate the two completely. And it affects your everyday life. But good physical behavior has to have as its source spiritual truth, spiritual motivation. For example, Meals on Wheels. If you've ever done that or had a friend that did that, volunteered to do that from time to time, That is a great opportunity to help people, absolutely. But if the person I give that meal to 
never hears the gospel out of my mouth, even though I may be a great Meals on Wheels representative, I've failed as an ambassador of Jesus if they never hear anything else other than here's this physical meal. But I never share the gospel. I never give my 30-second testimony. I never, I mean, I never do anything like that. I really failed as an ambassador of Jesus. So are you connected to God? Are you listening to what he tells you? Are you obeying what he tells you? The Bible is more accessible than it's ever been. Remember, we even have it on our phones. Um, But there's still a spiritual famine, which is why it's so odd. That's why it's such an odd issue. So it's time for us, I think, I know, it's time for us to pursue God by consuming his word. It's time for the churches, not just here, but all over. It's time for the local church to take back God's word, to remember how important it is, to develop an appetite for it, even if my appetite has waned, has diminished over time, to develop an appetite for it by consuming his word. Do you have a healthy appetite for God's word? If not, I want you to do something. I want you to pray this week and ask God to show you why that is. I don't think there's any one reason, but I know God can show you that. Now, the book brings up a couple of passages, the, the How to Eat Your Bible book, not the Bible, brings up a couple of passages that are very interesting regarding eating God's word, or the desire to let it grow you. So I want to share those with you, okay? Uh, and then one other one that I think is crucial. So look at Jeremiah 15. If you're in Amos, hang a left. Go to Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. If eating God's word, some of you that may sound familiar, some of you may say, think, what in the world? You can never assume that your audience knows a phrase of the Bible or a particular verse or something like that. So Jeremiah 15, I grew up in a Bible church, and by the time I graduated high school, I could probably tell you three or four Bible verses. I mean, it just went in one ear and out the other. So Jeremiah 15, 16 says, not, it wasn't their fault, that's my fault. So what is this stuff about eating God's word? This makes no sense. Okay, Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament prophets, we find this issue of, ooh, that kind of stung a little bit, but listen to this. Your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Now, look at Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. So if you're in Jeremiah, hang a right, a couple of books, a couple of letters. Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. Ezekiel chapter 3, 1 through 3 says, give you a little bit of time to get there. Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. And then we're going to Psalm 119. Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. Moreover, he said to me, and Ezekiel's ministering in a very tough time spiritually. Um, Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, God's words that he's you know, recording. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was, it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. And, so, and that's what it is. I mean, sometimes God wor- God's word corrects me and kind of slaps me on the side of the face a little bit and says, hey, wake up, quit doing this. You're doing this, you need to quit. But, but a lot of times, and that does that a lot of times, but also a lot of times, it, I need encouragement. I need lifting up. I need affirming in, in the right direction. I need those things. And it does that too. He's, Ezekiel's saying, it, it tasted so good. We're speaking allegorically here, okay? He didn't literally eat the scroll. It tasted so good, it was like in my mouth honey and sweetness. Look at Psalm 119. 
David actually says a lot about this, but just let's just look at one example. 119th Psalm. Our pastor preached through this, what, a couple years ago? Wasn't that long ago. The older you get, you just say, just the other day. No, but a few years ago, he preached through this. Great, great chapter. And so it says, Psalm 119, verse 103. Psalm 119, verse 103. 103. The psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. They knew what honey tasted like. This, they said, hey, your word's sweeter. Look at 1 Peter. I know we're doing Bible drill tonight, but look at 1 Peter. Take a hard right, and then we're going to Matthew 4. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 1 through 3. I just want to show you several examples of, of this idea. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. 1 Peter 2, and if you do like me, you'll look up and you're in 2 Peter. So 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow thereby. Grow from it. That's how we grow. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Interesting. So there's this speech over and over and over again about tasting God's word, eating God's word. Last one, Matthew 4, verse 4. Matthew 4, verse 4. I came across this one and I thought, this might be even the best one. Matthew 4, 4, this is Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. That as soon as Jesus is baptized, the Father affirms him and puts his blessing on him, and then the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. Now, the Holy Spirit's not God just as much as Jesus is God. Jesus is just sent. If he lets anybody other than God lead him, but he doesn't sin. The Holy Spirit is God too, and the second person of the Trinity lets the third person of the Trinity lead him. The very next thing Mark says he does after his baptism is the Spirit leads him. It's the Greek word to throw, so he, not, that, not to imply violence necessarily, but just urges him, you need to go out into the desert, have a time of fasting. Wilderness, today we'd say desert, and it just means nothing out there. And so he does this, and then Satan comes to him and tempts him. Look at Matthew 4.4. 4. Satan says in verse 3, if you're the son of God, uh, there's, there's four different ways to say if in Greek. Okay? One assumes it's true. One assumes it's not true. One could go either way. And the fourth one is never going to happen. This is the first one. It's assumed to be true. So when Satan says, if you're the son of God, the way it's set up, that doesn't come through in the English. The way it's set up is, and I'm assuming you are, and you are, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Verse four, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How in the world could a man live by God's words? When you think about that, well, then you realize, okay, he's not talking physically, he's talking spiritually. Now, the author gives two, the author of this book, gives two warnings that I think are helpful, okay? Number one, when you're doing this study and everything we're going to talk about, how to eat God's word. Number one, don't get prideful. Avoid a spirit of pride. Don't get prideful because it can do that. The more you learn about the Bible, you learn this, you learn that. You know, there's nothing more dangerous than a first semester Greek student in seminary because he goes, hey, I know, uh, 
uh, agape. I know agape. They know everything about agape, the word for love. So don't get prideful. You're not just studying God's word for the knowledge because then you run the risk of becoming prideful. That's one of the traps the Pharisees fell into, by the way. You have to use the knowledge, which they didn't do. You have to use the knowledge. You have to apply the knowledge. And so when you submit to the text of God's word that you're learning about, it keeps you humble. When you don't just learn about it to say, ooh, I know this verse, I know that verse, I know the kenosis theory of the incarnation. Okay, who cares if you don't live it out and submit to it? So I don't just study God's word. I actually submit to the truth that's in it. It's an authority over me. Who has an authority to tell me what to do? Who has authority to tell anybody what to do? We believe God does, and he does that through his word. So that's it. It's not just learning it. It's learning how to apply it. And so to do that, I have to obey it. So obedience has this amazing way. When you're obeying God, not something else. When you're obeying God in his word, it has this amazing way of keeping you humble. In fact, Paul, God gives him a vision of heaven that apparently no one ever got before, or at least not very many people. And Paul talks about it. This vision of heaven God gave him. And he got so cocky about it and prideful that God allowed a thorn in the flesh, an angelos, angel, messenger of Satan, to, to mess with him, to, to not possess him, but mess with him to keep his pride in check. So for, I don't know how long that lasted, but for an extended period of time, that's what God allowed in his life because Paul became boastful, prideful about it. And Paul asked him three times to take it away. God said, nope, I'm not going to right now. My grace is enough for you. And so Paul dealt with it. But so pride is a very real risk. I mean, imagine if you were taken and seen part of heaven. You, would, you might get, you know, people in books claim they have. I, I, don't, I don't know. One of them came out later and said I didn't really. So I, yeah, I just, I'm really hesitant about that kind of stuff. I'm not saying I'm hesitant about that stuff just because Paul went there and he said it's not lawful for me to talk about what I saw. So I, just, I struggle with that with those books. Okay, number one, don't get prideful. Number two, don't be ashamed. You think, what in the world are you talking about? Ashamed? Why would I be ashamed? Well, any text that deals with the human heart deals with um, part of the fallenness of who we are, the, the flawed nature, the bent nature. And so one of the things Paul says in Romans, remember he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Because it's power and salvation for all those who believe. He says, I'm not ashamed. Why in the world would he say that? If we didn't sometimes or often have the tendency around peer pressure or, or inside of a culture, hello, inside of a culture that rejects God's word or his principles or that is more and more over time, that you have to have courage. Sometimes you're going to get shamed or feel ashamed or be tempted to feel ashamed at least to stand up for God's truth. And so he's, he's saying, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So number two, I would say don't be ashamed. If you... Here's what I mean. If you don't know how to study or you've met a challenge you don't know how to overcome in your study of God's word, don't be ashamed about that either. Um, That's what the members of the church are here for. You think, oh, I've been a Christian for 10 years, so I feel ashamed because I'm supposed to know all this stuff and I don't. Um, You know, that was my story for a while. And so that's what the church is for. That's what other believers are for. Go to each other for help. And here in this chapel series, we'll talk about how you can actually read the Bible. Part of our job as, as a staff or an elder or whatever biblical word you want to use um, as, sta- as ministry staff, part of our job, Ephesians 4, is to equip you to help do that. So as in, here in this series, we'll talk about how you can actually read the Bible, understand what it's telling you, and how to apply it. Okay. So chapter 2, 
in your notes. Chapter 2 is called Beginning with Prayer. So chapter 1, discuss the spiritual famine. Chapter 2, in your notes, that little section called Chapter 2, in his book, it's titled Beginning with Prayer, which I love. I think it's perfect. We've got a discipleship lesson, a series that we do that's 25 weeks long. We have a week just on prayer. We actually really have kind of three, but we have a week just on prayer, and it's so important. New students of the Bible often feel, I would say they will, feel overwhelmed. I mean, you look, you open this book for the first time and you think, okay, where do I start? I don't think I can start in Leviticus. Where do I start? Which, by the way, if you dig into Leviticus, it's fascinating. It is not boring. There is not a boring book in here. But where do I start? And a lot of people struggle with that. They don't even know how to get started, really. That's normal. That's normal for a new believer. So the Bible, because the Bible is a very unique book, it's unique in all of human history. So how do I understand what it's saying? It's also unique in what I already said. It claims to be the very speech of God himself, which it is. So the author of this book said, I'm not going to quote him often, but he's got two great quotes I just want to read here. Number one, he says, once we understand what the Bible actually is, we can then begin to understand how to access it, how to understand it, how to love it, and how to be changed by it. And that's his point. The Bible is the very speech of God. It claims to be that. Either that's preposterous lie or that's the truth. Um, He also says this. Even though the Bible is written by more than 40 different authors, the Bible claims for itself one divine author. This is why we call the Bible God's word. Because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So that's a huge claim. And that's God breathed, that, that verse we started off reading. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So what, how did that look like? Did that mean that God takes over these men who are writing Scripture completely? And they do what the New Agers now call that channel spirits, incredibly dangerous. They channel spirits and they do what's called automatic writing in the New Age movement. I mean, you can go by the books of the results of what the automatic writing is in the metaphysics section of the bookstore. So obviously very dangerous when you're opening yourself up to any spiritual source. Is that what God did? No. God didn't take Peter over, and then Peter ceased to be Peter, and he just goes into a trance and starts doing automatic writing. That's not how God moved Peter. When these men were inspired, the Holy Spirit came to them and moved them, them along in such a way that what every word, down to the verb tense, Jesus bases the doctrine of the resurrection on a verb tense from the Old Testament. It says, I, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. Present tense. So, Every single word here down to the verb tense is inspired by God, where God moved the biblical authors along in such a way and inspired them in such a way that their personality and grammar and writing style and and experiences come through on the paper. God does use that. But that every single word that ends up on the page, again, down to the verb tense, past, present, future, etc., is what the Holy Spirit wanted to put on the page. So, again, that is a... And let me say this, I don't even have this in my notes. Every denomination that has walked away from believing that, has, except for Southern Baptists, has never recovered. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I went to a Southern Baptist uh, um, seminary, and a lot of people don't understand independent Baptists and why independent Baptists, and we do missions differently, obviously, and we do a few things differently, and more of an independent structure. Although we're part of a network, too, the BBFI, just like they have the SBC. But honestly and this was back before my time, this was when I was real little, back then, even the SBC didn't know what they believe. I mean, the Southern Baptist 
seminaries. You had profs in there teaching garbage, teaching Genesis. They'd read Genesis and they go, yeah, but we know it didn't really happen like that. That's just allegory. And so it's the only denomination having walked away from believing that this is fully God's word to have recovered. And it took a nasty 15, 20-year fight to, to do that. So no other than that, no denomination that walks away from that position on God's word ever recovers. They end up sliding into chaos, sin, anything goes. So we got to lock this down. Look, this is God's word. Um, now, we can talk about what the original letter said based on the manuscript copies we have and say, was it this tense of the verb or that tense? Did it include this phrase or not? We can have those conversations to, to, to study back to what the original said because we don't have any copies of the originals. We can have those conversations, sure, but this is fully God's word and uh, we've got to trust it. It's, it's been faithfully passed down to us. There's even some miraculous stories about that that we don't have time to get into tonight, but it's, it's, it's an amazing book. So, okay, look. Look at 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. 2 Peter, so not first, second. Peter 1, 20 and 21. Yeah, we're good on time. Okay, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Got to make sure I'm in the right. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter says this. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Interesting. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what I just explained to you. Not dictation, not automatic writing and channeling, not forced, coerced behavior. That's not how God did it. God chose to use their experiences but inspired them to write the letter. Um, It's distinct, for example, from Islam. Islam's story is that Muhammad has this angel. I would use air quotes, but I'm trying to stop doing that. Uh, That, you know, habits you should drop, that air quotes need to go away. Um, he was, he was uh, led by a supposedly this angel. I don't think it was an angel at all. I think it was a fallen angel in this cave to write the Quran. And don't take my word for it. Go back to their writings. This angel literally tortured him until, compelled him, forced him to write these writings known as the Quran. That's very distinct from how God moves and inspires and writes through the biblical authors. Those are two very, very, very different things. That's what First Peter. That's what Peter says in First Peter, Second uh, Peter, one twenty and twenty one. All right, next verse. Take a left, a few letters. Go to Hebrews. Sounds like it's Old Testament, but it's actually New. It's one of the best books to explain the Old Testament in light of the New. But um, Hebrews four twelve. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Look what it says about God's speech. Um, For the word, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. In what way? Well, in this way piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Bible has an ability 
as I'm reading it and truly studying it with an attitude of submission, not to say, hey, how, many, how much knowledge can I build up, but with a true attitude of submitting to what it says. The Bible has a way of, of reading me. I, just, I don't just read it, it reads me. And it gets into every little nook and cranny of my life. So this would be the opposite of if you invited Jesus into your house and you had him in the foyer or the guest room, and you said, okay, Jesus, um, do you need water, tea? No, you're good? Okay. And you put him in a bedroom and you shut the door and you lock the door and you said, you can hang out here. Don't come into any other room in my house. I want you to come in, but I don't want to give you access to everything. That's not what the gospel has in mind at all when we're saved. That we, what, what it has in mind is that we open every room in our house open to him. That everything is open. And so what this is saying is, uh, back to Hebrews 4, it has the, if you let it, it has the ability to do that. The word has the ability to get into every little area of your life, even areas you didn't know were there, hidden areas that you thought, I'm fine there, or you didn't even know that was a thing, and the word of God steps into that little thing and does exactly like precision, precision surgery. It does exactly that little thing that needs doing. Correction, encouragement, a slap in the face, um, um, a, a check on pride, a, a handout to lift me back up when I need back up, all those things. It does all the thing, all of them. It doesn't just do one or the other. It, it does both. It, it corrects and it, and it encourages. That's what's so great about it. If I pick and choose and I don't go through all of God's word, I might run the risk of only focusing on one or the other. It does both. So in 1 Corinthians 2, we're not going to go there if you want to write it down. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul tells us that since the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, we have to have the Holy Spirit's help in understanding what he says in it. We need spiritual eyesight, basically. Can I not understand any word in it? No, I can understand some basic things, but I have to have the Spirit to truly grasp and understand all of God's Word. So as you approach God's Word, the Bible, it's important that you do it uh, in prayer because I need the Holy Spirit to understand it, right? I need the Holy Spirit to understand it. I need the Holy Spirit to have the desire to, to obey it. I need the Holy Spirit helping me walk it out and obey it. All those things. So that's 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says that. So as you approach God's Word, do it in prayer. For example... I would sit down, I would remove all other distractions to the degree that it's possible, okay? If you've got five kids running around, you're just thankful for 30 seconds of a breath of fresh air. But to the degree that it's possible, if you're married and you've got kids running around, they're going to distract from it, maybe have the husband take them out, or, you, or have the husband watch them, you go to the coffee shop uh, and spend a little bit of time, or, or vice versa. Sit down, remove distractions, and it's just you, God, and your Bible. If you're going to use your phone, that's fine. I would put it, put it in airplane mode. Because any, any text, any email, any ping, I don't know if y'all have apps that push. I turn all the push off because I hate that. I want to check my email when I want to stink and check my email. But people have push on. So you're in the middle of reading a Bible verse and ding, ding, ding. A million distractions as if we don't already have enough of those in our lives. That adds to it. So if you're going to study the Bible on your phone, I don't like to. But I'm not going to say you can't. If you're going to, fine, put it on airplane mode that way. And if you don't know what that is, swipe up, hit the airplane button. If you have something other than an iPhone, I can't help you. I don't know how to use. I barely know how to use the iPhone. So there you go. Use it on airplane mode where you're not going to get those distractions. You're not going to get those things that's going to, man, I'm really focused in. I feel like my mind is finally and I'm ready and the spirit's leading me and I'm ready to read God's word. And then 
wham, this work email comes up or this birthday reminder comes up and my mind is immediately on, on something else. That's not helpful. So just you, God, and your Bible. Then I want you to pray and ask God to show you what he's telling you through his word that you're about to read. Ask him to give you understanding of what the text says and how to obey it. I like to use the phrase, pull it into your life. Same thing, obey it, understand it, apply it. Um, Number one, I think there's a few things that scripture would say. I think you need to pray for understanding and wisdom. I think God wants us to have that. I think that's crucial because God says, look at Colossians 1, 9, and 10. So, you've got Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Just a few more verses, and then we'll wrap up. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. That's it, too. I can hear when the pages stop that most people are there. I can't hear that on a phone. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled. And here, what is it, what's his prayer for them? That they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That, it's, it's a so that, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful, effective, and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So see, this knowledge is not just to puff up. It's for application. It's for obedience. And that's what keeps my pride in check. So sometimes the reason we can't see how a passage of Scripture applies to us is because we haven't prayed and asked God to show us. And this says, look, one of the things Paul prayed for the church uh, of the Colossians was understanding and wisdom. Uh, Look at the next verse. Take a hard left. um, We're going to be in John 17 next. But take a hard left before that to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2. You need to pray for enjoyment. Biblically, I think that's totally fine to pray for. I think a lot of people don't spend time in God's word because they've never learned how to enjoy it. They see it as a, I mean, we've all fallen into this, haven't we? I mean, you have. Don't lie. You probably have. We've all fallen into this trap. Hopefully, we don't stay there very long where we just don't enjoy we, we read it because it's something we know we're supposed to do to either check it off our list or, oh, I haven't read this week, so I read. But, I, you know, there's no enjoyment. And I think a lot of times that's why people stop. Look at this. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. There's an interesting uh, dissension and action from walking to standing to sitting. So when you're when you're hanging around with that crowd and letting them influence you, there's a, I think it's interesting. The psalmist says there's less and less action until you're, you're just sitting there. Uh, but look at verse 2. But instead, what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. And in the Old Testament, this is a synonymous way of saying his word of the Old Testament. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Not New Age meditation where I empty my mind and I let whatever spiritual entity in that wants to get in, in. No, no, no. Biblical meditation. I don't empty my mind. I fill my mind with Scripture, and I chew on it like the cow chews a cud. I chew on God's Word. It may be one verse, and I think about it all week because I need that with what I'm going through right now. It needs to correct an area where I am. I'm struggling with something, and I need hope, whatever it is, and I'm chewing on that all week. It says, 
part of that meditation, it says his delight is in the law of the Lord. We'll talk about this more in this series, but I think a lot of times people quit reading or don't read because they just don't enjoy it. So I think it's perfectly fine to pray for enjoyment, that the Holy Spirit give us the desire uh, to read God's word in such a way where we, a light bulb comes on. We enjoy the process. We enjoy it. We were all designed to preach. Favorite movie, favorite TV show. Have you ever, did you keep that a secret or did you ever tell somebody about it? You told somebody about it. And how did you tell them? You told them, hey, have you seen Dances with Wolves? One of the best movies ever made. You know, have you seen Lonesome Dove? You know, whatever it is. You're a salesman. You're, you're a natural preacher. We're, we're all designed that way. Hey, have you tried Bob's Better Burger? It is the greasiest, but it is the best burger that you'll ever put in your mouth. You sell, Jim Cannell was the first one to take us there. Thank you, Jim. You sell people on what you're, you're doing because you're designed to be a preacher. So, but you're not going to do that if you don't even enjoy what you're reading. If you didn't enjoy that movie, or Bob's Better Burger was horrible and dry, which it's not, but if it was horrible and dry, you wouldn't tell anybody. In fact, if you did, you'd tell them not to go there. You're not excited. You're not going to share that. Um, you need to pray that you'll change. Look at John 17. That's where I said we'd be next. John 17, 17. Toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, before the cross, he's praying for his guys to the Father, and here's one of the things he says. John 17, 17. Um, You need to pray that you'll change. Look at verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify, set apart. This is part of our growth as a Christian. Now we're saved. Okay, now what should we do? We should grow. That's sanctification. Sanctify them by your truth. What helps them grow? Your truth. Your word is truth. That's Jesus' prayer for us. Okay, so if that's Jesus' prayer for us, I think we need to pray that we will change, that there will be this growth, that God clearly wants that for us. I mean, if Jesus prays that for us, obviously God clearly wants that for us. Look at Ephesians 3. You need to know that he loves you. Look at Ephesians 3. Look, I need to be careful how I say this. Um, God is more important than anything else in the universe. Yes, absolutely. Don't hear anything else with what I'm about to say. But sometimes we almost, um, we also have to realize we're made in his image. We're, We're the pinnacle of his creation. Does that mean we can save ourselves and we're inherently good and we don't inherit a sin nature? And no, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm not trying to lift us up above where we should be. But, but look at Ephesians 3. One of Paul's prayers for the Ephesian church that caused him to hit his knees was that they would understand the degree to which and the, con- and the type of which love that God loves them. That was the foundation of their walk with him, that he loves them. Not himself, them. His love is aimed out. So again, he's great, he's awesome, he's, he's, uh, uh, we're to lift him up in everything we do and bring glory to him. Agreed, 100%. But look at this, Ephesians 3. Some of us just sit there and beat ourselves up and we think, oh, God doesn't want to use me, God doesn't care about me, God, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Check this out. For this reason I bow my knees. What's Paul doing? He's praying. To the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Is there any limit to that? No. 
limitless, according to the riches of his glory, what? To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, the innermost part of who you are, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, okay? That's salvation, justification. That you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. Paul's prayer for them is that they were rooted and grounded. Part of the foundation of their walk with God was the fact that he loved them. In love, he says this, may be able to comprehend with all the other believers, all the saints, what is the width, length, depth, and height. What is he talking about? Of his love. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You can't be filled with God's fullness if you don't realize his love for you. So, that's another thing. Some of us have that locked down and don't struggle with that, but I think some of us do struggle with that. That as I'm approaching God's word and I'm approaching learning about him, I lock down the truth that his word says in Ephesians 3 and other places that I need to know that he loves me. Not in some desperate he lacks something sense. No, no, no. The Trinity had perfect fellowship and did not need anything else before he created us. I'm not saying God's desperate. I'm not implying desperate. Some people read that into when he says he loves us, or they may even use the phrase, if it's appropriate to use that, he's crazy about us. I don't know, but they, 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 they think, oh, you mean he's desperate. No, not necessarily. Absolutely loves us. I, I think so many people struggle with believing that, and it zaps their confidence or willingness to, why would I want to go to someone who, it, it changes everything when you realize the depth of his love for you, and I think that it's important, not because I think so, or I want to think so, I do, but not because of that, but because Paul says it. So application, last part in your notes. Do you only go to the Bible to fix a problem you have? Or do you always desire it because you realize your need for it to grow as a Christ follower? Do I only go to it because, you know, God's my cosmic genie, he's going to get me out of this jam, or do I come to it because I realize my need for it? So if after prayer and study, and the use of some helpful tools that we'll cover and talk about in this series over the next few weeks. If you still don't understand what the Bible is saying, I want you to think about a possibility. Not a certainty, just one possibility. You might need to consider the possibility that you don't have the Spirit of God because you're not born again. In John 3, Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin members, comes to Jesus by night, kind of slips in and asks him some questions. And Jesus basically says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. How do you enter into your mother's womb and be born again? That's, that's ridiculous. That's preposterous. And Jesus is saying, and that leads to John 3, 16, the, the Bible verse that so many of us start memorizing. It's probably one of the few that I knew <laughs> leaving the Iwana program, which was not the Iwana program's fault. That was my fault. Um, John 3. He says, you've got to be born again. So maybe if I can't understand Scripture over an extended period of time, maybe you need to consider the possibility that maybe I don't have the Spirit of God to show me what it means because I'm not saved. John 3 tells me I have to be born again. Look, I, I like the guy that said it this way. This was stolen. Everything good is stolen, by the way. It's not, I didn't come up with this. <laughs> he says, if you're only born once, you'll die twice. If I only have a physical birth, like Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you've got to be born twice. If I only have the first birth, physical birth, I'll die twice. I'll die physically, and dying is not a ceasing to exist. Remember, it's a separation. My spirit and my soul separate from my physical body. I experience physical death, and I experience death, separation from God, spiritual death. 
I'll die twice, physical death and spiritual death. Revelation calls it the second death, spiritual death. I don't get to enjoy God's presence, and that lasts for eternity. And again, it's not annihilationism. I don't cease to exist. I am, I, I am separated from the creator, and I feel that. If you're only born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, the second birth he talked about in John 3, I'm born physically and I'm reborn. I'm born spiritually because I trust Christ as my Savior. Then you'll only die once. You'll die a physical death where my body is separated. Some people, and I don't necessarily disagree with them, some people even see the rapture as our spirit and soul is raptured, bodies left here. I think the bodies are gone too, but there are some conservative Christian scholars that say, and they just pass it off as some weird disease that we got. And our body stays, and then later we're resurrected. Either way, there's that physical death, but I never have to experience the physical death. Not once. Not at all. Not any measure of it. Like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, to pay off the penalty of my sin for a temporary time. Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? Um, somebody help me here. Purgatory. And it's not a degree. I have to pay part of it, and then I get to be with God. No, 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 no. Um, it's not purgatory. It's not that idea. If I'm only born once, I'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. Nobody has to experience that second death. So John, although most will, right? He says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Last verse, John 16, 7 and 8 says this. John 16, 7 and 8. I hate that. I hate when I get a tickle in my throat and I cannot stop coughing and I try to drink water and, oh, I feel her pain. Okay. John 16, 7 and 8. Um, John 16, 7 and 8. And then we'll bounce down to verse 13. Nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. Jesus is talking to his guys, um, to his followers. It's to your advantage that I go away. What? Wait a second. Did Jesus just say it's better that he leaves than that he stays with them? That's what he said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict. That Greek word literally means to win an argument. He'll win the argument about sin in your life. When he's come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then look at verse 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Because he won't speak on his own authority. For whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, uh, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So that's what Jesus wants for us. So if that's you, if you say, you know what? I can't understand God's works. I don't have the spirit of God because I'm not saved. If God shows you that, then it's really simple. It's not complex. He says a child can come to me. Repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, and ask him to take what he did on the cross and apply it to you. It is a, it's a profound transaction, but it's a really simple one. So homework. I want you to go home and look through these passages we've covered tonight. Any others that come to mind? And um, as we, next time we'll go into a little bit more of how do I understand, how do I grasp what God's telling me in his word? If you don't have a healthy appetite for God's word, I want you to pray this week and ask God to show you why that is. So that's part of your homework. I want you to make it your goal not just to read the Bible, but to understand it. So that would be part of your homework. And then in addition to the help of the Holy Spirit, God designed us to get help from each other. 
So get with other believers in the local church and spend time learning and applying God's word together. That's a Sunday school class. That's a small group. That's a, we do that different ways, right? More than one way to skin that cat. This, along with evangelism to those outside the church, so helping those inside the church grow, we help each other grow according to our giftedness God gives us, and evangelism to, help, to reach those outside the church is the point of discipleship. Studying God's word together, and then applying it and obeying what he calls you to do, whatever that is. So that's your homework. And then the last section says read, and I've got two helpful books. One is the book of the series. It's called How to Eat Your Bible, Nate Pickowicz. Say that 10 times fast. Nate Pickowicz, that's 2021. Moody was the publisher on this, How to Eat Your Bible. Not an expensive book. I think you can get it for... This one says $13.99. I think you can find it for cheaper than that. That's just retail. The second one is The Story of the Bible, Larry Stone. Nelson published it in 2010. Story of the Bible, Larry Stone. It's not complicated. It puts everything on the top shelf for you. It doesn't use overly big words to sound fancy. It, It explains how the Bible formed over time, how they made copies, what this version looked like, what this version, and it's got tear out sections. It's got sections that, where you can take copies of actual manuscripts. And, oh, I can, this is a photocopy of what a particular Bible looks like. So I can look at some of that. It's extremely helpful. So if you want to do that, grab that. It's called The Story of the Bible, Larry Stone. How did they make copies? What writing utensils did they write with? What did they write on? Did they write on animal skins? Did they write on this? When, you know, what did all that look like? How did God form his Bible? It's a great resource. Any questions? And I will close this out in prayer. Anybody got any questions? By the way, if you know somebody, um, I, I told you I'd mention this. These are on the back table. If you know somebody that doesn't know Christ, needs to know him, look, here's what I would do. I, I like this approach. Not the only approach, but I like this approach. You do coffee in the break room at work, or you uh, do lunch with them and some friends, whatever. Do coffee, call them on the phone, although face-to-face is usually better. And you have this, and you say, look, you, you don't give them your 30-minute testimony unless, unless they ask for more. You give them your three-minute testimony. Here's what God did in my life. You focus more on what he's done than, oh, man, I, we had all this fun, and we partied, but now I'm saved, and I don't. Don't do that. You focus more on after salvation, in, in salvation, than before in about three minutes. You give them your three-minute testimony, your business card, if they don't have your contact info, say, this explains more about it. If you have questions, you want to talk about that, let me know. What have you done? You haven't beaten their door down. It's, it's an easy, no pressure way to do it. The, the ball is in their court. If they want to contact you, they can. And I, I just think that's a great, you may bring it up again with them, but I just think that's a great way to do it, but to make sure that I do it. Any questions? And then I will wrap us up in prayer. Does anybody have anything? Tonight. Hopefully you will starting next week as we actually begin to... Um, we actually begin to walk into some of this. Anybody have anything? Nothing. Okay. Uh, Seven-day prayer guide that we're using this week, okay, for Mission uh, 938, Project 938. I was going to take, uh, I think our pastor said start on Sunday. I was just going to take a Monday approach, so that would lead us to today. If, If we'd started a day later, that would put us on day three tonight. So I'm going to pray. Day three is Latin America. These are in our bulletin, by the way, if you want to grab one on your way out, if you forgot to. 
Um, it has you pray specific things for specific areas of the world. So this one's Latin America. It says, pray for the protection of our missionaries, pastors, and believers living in dangerous areas in Latin America, and for leadership training, and for the health and strength of the pastors and missionaries for their work. So uh, if anybody doesn't have anything, I will close this in prayer. Nothing? Going once, going twice? Okay, Lord, thank you for your word, and we've just taken a glance at what it says about itself tonight. In the next few weeks, we're going to really dig into what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How do I apply it? How do I actually live that out um, in this series, How to Eat Your Bible? Um, It's such an important topic, Lord. And this is not some new idea we thought up. Your word is um, full of this idea, this concept of growing through your word. And so uh, we need that. We're in a spiritual famine in our land, and we need more than ever the word of God. We need to learn to feed on it and develop an appetite for it and an enjoyment of it, too. To experience your love, to experience your correction, all those things. And so, God, tonight I just pray that um, your spirit would take this series and use it in a way that only you can. It's not my words. It's your movement uh, through what I'm saying. So, uh, God, I just pray um, also for Latin America. I pray for Mexico, the rest of Central America. I pray for South America. Um, there's so many countries, uh, too many to name right now. But, Lord, I, I pray for that region as we're praying through the different regions of the globe around uh, this week. Uh, and moving on into the future, if, if we choose to. I pray tonight specifically for Latin America. I pray for your missionaries, your pastors, the different believers there, that you would encourage them, you would strengthen them to do everything you've called them to do. I pray you'd give them courage and boldness, not uh, rudely, but in love, to communicate your truth to other people. That they won't negotiate on your truth, the truth of your word, but they don't do it in a crass or hateful or flippant, or dismissive way, they communicated in love. But they also can't budge on the truth. So I pray that you would help them hold on to both of those things, the truth and communicating it in love. And I know a lot of the areas, the pressure to not follow your truth is immense. Even in countries that call themselves Christian, but by that they mean something very different down there. Um, Lord, particularly there, they need strength and courage to correct people's false ideas on what it actually means to follow you. So I just pray you would use them, guide them. Thank you for all our missionaries that we support, all they're doing down there. Um, The hubs, the mission hubs, meaning they're sending missionaries themselves now as well. Um, In fact, they're eclipsing us, (laughs) uh, which is good in a way. Um, I pray you'd continue to bless and lead them in that. Pray this all in Jesus' name.